This episode of Test Design Discs is sponsored by Provar. As the leading end-to-end test automation solution for Salesforce, Provar helps enterprises maximize the return on their Salesforce investment. Deliver robust, scalable, and repeatable tests to accelerate releases, improve quality, and drive down system errors with Provar's intuitive testing solution and world-class service. To learn more, visit provartesting.com. Welcome to Testers Island Discs, your most musical guide to software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Testers Island Discs where we find ourselves at the beginning of the Ministry of Testing's Exploratory Testing Week. If you listen to this episode when it drops, there are workshops, talks, AMAs, challenges, experience reports, all sorts of things going on on the Ministry of Testing website. And if you're listening to it a long way in the future, you can find most of those on the Ministry of Testing website. I'll put links to everything uh, in the description as I usually do. But I have a guest today who has a lot of experience with exploratory testing. It's Lee Hawkins. Lee hails from the Bellarine Peninsula, not far from Melbourne in Australia. He's worked for 25 years now in a variety of mostly dev and test roles and has recently founded his own consultancy firm, Dr. Lee Consulting. He's an organiser and chair for various Australian testing events and training programmes, as well as having a close association with the AST, helping them with conference organisation and other activities. Among his many other talents, he's also turned his hand to authoring. He's written a book called An Exploration of Testers and has recently begun work on another called Navigating the World as a Context-Driven Tester. And as if that wasn't enough, he still finds time to run one of the biggest status quo fan sites in the world with the most comprehensive gig listing available. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Oh, thanks, Neil. It's, uh, it's nice to be asked onto a podcast, and uh, I think we can have a, a pretty interesting discussion, and it's an excuse for me to uh, introduce people to lots of status quo records. Fantastic. It's always a fun challenge when we have a, an Australian guest because we start to get into the uh, obviously the challenges of time zones and particularly because we were organising this slightly before we both changed our daylight savings and we're at a place in the world where the UK clocks went forward but the Australian clocks went backwards. I posted a tweet on this that I, I see myself as someone who's who's fairly intelligent but as soon as you start throwing arranging events in the future where both people are changing their time zones, uh, it becomes a mess for me. So this used to be easier in that the UK and Australia used to change their clocks basically on the same day. So Melbourne would be you know, 11 hours ahead of UK during our summer, and then you'd go one way, we'd go the other, and then we'd be nine hours different all through winter. But now um, there's a couple of weeks in between where it's a 10-hour difference because we don't change the clocks at the same time. We have the same problem with the UK and US have recently gone out of step. I can't remember who changed it. I think the late 90s, early 2000, they changed theirs clocks a week earlier than ours and i was arranging a meeting with someone in america recently and they said uh, do you want to meet at 7 p.m uk time and i said to them well the time that you think 7 p.m uk time is is not going to be that time when we get there there are some useful resources online i'm going to link to one that's been invaluable to me that's one of these pick a date pick the time zones that are involved and it will tell you what the real differences are between those times um, i'll put that in the show notes for anyone cool. who uh, listening to this in the future or when we get around to uh, october when the clocks change again yeah. um Lee, your Twitter handle is um, the Rocker Tester, um, and obviously we've, we mentioned about your love for status quo. Wh- which is uh, the most important thing in your life? Is it being a rocker or being a tester? Yeah, well, I mean, chronologically speaking, it was definitely rocker first, right? because I got into British rock music and status quo in particular 
towards the end of the 70s as a young kid. So uh, I was definitely, I was definitely more a rocker than uh, a tester early on. Uh, in terms of passion, uh, it's a pretty close call, I think, but Quo probably edges it still, um, just because it's been part of my life for, well, basically as long as I can remember. Um, it's just brought so many pe- good people into my life through their music and the community and friendships around it. That, um, yeah, I just can't imagine not having that as part of my life. Um, but I probably could with that testing. What we really need is something that combines both the disciplines. We need people who are making music about testing. I don't quite know how that would work. I know we, we, there are music, there are musicians within the community. Uh, I've met some of them. I know Michael Bolton plays a mean mandolin. Um, but I don't, I don't know how that would work in practicality. I, I know of uh, uh, a famous nerd musician uh, called Jonathan Coulton, who does a lot of, sort of math-based songs. He does a, a, an amusing song called The Mandelbrot Set, which is yeah, explains oh, yeah. Um, the mathematical principle in the form of a song. Uh, but if, if we could get some testing songs out there uh, about maybe, maybe exploratory testing, maybe that would be a good thing. But um, we should probably leave the music to the musicians, um, which in, in this case... Um, as we're going to find through your song choices, it's predominantly status quo. Uh, and you mentioned coming across them uh, in the 70s. Uh, I'm a little bit younger than you. So my my um, discovery of Quo was a little later, although surprisingly early in my life. Um, I first encountered them um, when they opened uh, at Live Aid. Um, mm-hmm. I was only three at the time, but I had a, a cassette recorded off the radio of Live Aid from Wembley. And obviously status quo opened with Rockin' All Over the World. Um, how early in their career did they make the transition over to, to being known in Australia? Because I, I have always thought of them as, as very much a British-focused, British-centric band. Oh, actually, they, they were they were very popular in Australia very early. So they, they first toured here in 1973. Um, and they, they did very, very big tours here, often coming here twice a year, in fact, through the mid-70s. So that they were a very well-known act here, and they, they sort of played into the whole sort of pub rock music scene that was going on in Australia at that time. Um, people like ACDC were just starting. Um, so they slotted right in just at the right time. And um, yeah, they, they were doing very successful tours here for a long time in the 70s. But then, then they didn't come here for almost 20 years. From oh, that must have been How, what's, the, what's the furthest that you have travelled to be able to see them? Uh, probably here. I actually came to see them here before I lived here. So oh, I travelled from, from the UK to see them here. Um, when I broke that 20-year hiatus, actually. So I came back um, for that tour. Um, but, yeah, they, they've, and they, they've toured fairly regularly for the last sort of 15, 20 years here, which is quite nice. Yeah, they're a fun and a, and a varied group, which I, th- I think comes out in your song selections. There, there are songs that, that are a style that I didn't associate with status quo. I think of them very much in their their traditional style. I mean, they are fairly self-deprecating and they did an album called In Search of the Fourth Chord because they have that very that driving sound and a rhythm that um, <laughs> that sometimes paints them into a corner. But um... For sure. And that, that was that was one of the reasons I, I decided to pick so many of their songs here is that it does give me a chance to sort of showcase some, some songs that are not just, you know, three-chord headstand boogie stuff. But they've actually done some other things in there. <laughs> 50 odd year career and and some of those things aren't even just in music um i'm always someone who likes to prepare for a podcast so i actually sat down last night and watched their feature film they did uh, called bula quo which came out in i think it was 2006 oh, and was, 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 was filmed in in fiji and I, I think partly by their own admission was mostly an excuse to go and have fun in fiji and it, it does show i mean it it's not aspiring to be Citizen Kane but everyone on screen is very clear, clearly having a good time having a laugh and you know I, I enjoyed it 
Yeah, that's interesting because uh, many status quo fans have actually refused to watch the entirety of that movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, uh, their acting is a bit wooden. Let's let's just say that, right? But, um, uh, well, it, it helps that they are playing themselves. I I would say there are there are worse offenders in the cast. There are there are professional actors in the cast who uh, are phoning in a bit more. John Lovitz is is chewing hmm. the scenery to an extent that makes it enjoyable. But uh, yeah, it, it's on certainly in the UK. It's on Amazon Prime, and if you've got an hour and a half to kill, there there are worse things you can do. Uh, but uh, I mean, some, yeah, some yeah, would argue yeah, well, it's not, not many. too bad. It's not too bad, like you say. They, it was an excuse for them to spend six weeks in Fiji or ever having a pretty good time. <laughs> Well, we should really get on to talking about what we're here to do, which is a, a discussion about exploratory testing, the whys, the wherefores, the whats, the hows, and all the various other questions. Um, before we do that, um, Lee, you've been asked to join us on the Tessa's Desert Island and to bring five songs that best represent um, what music means to you and uh, things that you enjoy. Um, I think it's not going to surprise people too much to know that this is a Tessa's Island first in that you've picked five status quo songs today. Uh, what's the first one that you've picked and what makes this one stand out um, in particular? So the first one I picked uh, is probably familiar to people that even don't realise it's a status quo song. Uh, it's a song called Caroline uh, from the early 1970s. The version I've chosen is a live version from the Birmingham NEC in 1982. Uh, one of the first gigs at Birmingham NEC in fact, by any band. Um, and it's a classic quo song and I never tire of listening to this song. I, I must have heard it thousands of times. Like The band has been opening their set with this song for well over 40 years, but it always somehow manages to, to sound pretty fresh to me and it's, it's a great energetic way to start off their concert. Live from the NEC in 1982, that was Lee Hawkins' first pick of status quo. That was Caroline. Now we're here today to talk about exploratory testing as part of the Miniature Testing's Exploratory Testing Week. Now, I don't like to just stick dictionary definitions into podcasts, but Lee, we all do exploratory testing. How, how would you define what it is and what it means to you? Yeah, so I guess my first sort of response to that is, do we all really do it? I, I, I hear this a lot, that everyone does exploratory testing and you see sort of testing surveys that say, you know, do you do exploratory testing? And 90% of people say they do or something. Um, I'm not so sure. And it does kind of come down to the definition, I suppose, mm. um, as to as to whether um, what I think of exploratory testing is what other people do uh, when, they, when they're asked whether they do it or not. But um, the, my sort of thinking around this has been focused on this idea of, uh, the learning and the test design and the test execution and the test reporting um, all being activities that run in parallel. Right? So that, that's basically the sort of Kem Kainer definition, mm -hmm. I guess, from whenever that was. Uh, um, 1984, I believe. 1984. So that's been around for a while. So I think that, that idea of like all of these things are actually happening and supporting each other at the same time is... Is sort of the way I was introduced to exploratory testing, I guess, and it has seemed to be a a way of thinking about it that resonates with 
uh, testers actually doing testing. Um, I know that people like uh, Michael Bolton and James Park have sort of moved away from that idea and just calling it testing, right? So, which is more about saying that it obviously involves exploration and experience and experiments and all that stuff. Uh, and sometimes sort of approaching it from, from that angle as well has been useful. But I guess for me, the, this idea of these activities happening at the same time and supporting each other all the way through, rather than, than these activities being sequential things that we, we sort of, you know, we stack one against the next until we get to the end of them. So that's been the distinction that seems to have been most useful for me. Yeah, I think that's the, the biggest um, difference between people who, who think they're doing exploratory testing and people who are. I think people often don't realize how much structure or discipline there is um, within exploratory testing. Uh, exploratory testing doesn't mean unplanned. It doesn't mean opening up a website and seeing what happens when you click buttons. I mean, uh, that's that's a kind of it. That that's You could take a tour through a product in that way if you choose to, uh, if you know that's what you're doing. Uh, but mm. I mean, there are terms using exploratory testing like charters, and I think uh, the, the terminology is really important because, I mean, if you think in terms of like the classical uh, explorers, like when James Cook set out to find Australia, he had a charter. He wasn't just setting sail and pointing his boat in a direction and seeing what happened. You know, he had a plan. He, he adapted the plan. Uh, and we know that plans change and you review and you and uh, as you say, these things are all happening along the way. And, you know, when he was out at sea, he didn't turn back, go back to port and then sit down and think what it was going to do again. He uh, adapted. Uh, and uh, hence why uh, Australia is is how it's named today. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. That's, I, I've certainly used that sort of explorer type idea to to make this point, um, mm -hmm. and that seems to work. So I, I do tend to still stick with the, the term exploratory testing rather than dropping the exploratory bit. So I mentioned at the top that you've um, you've been working in testing for about twenty five years now, which which again <laughs> in itself can seem to be a, a euphemism at times. You are very experienced, but it means that you you did operate in in a time. Um, before the term exploratory testing was widely known. Um, what do you think the biggest differences were uh, in, in your testing activities before before you became familiar with the term versus now? Is, is it knowing what the, the structure and the rituals are? Well, for, for me, I, uh, when I first started my career in testing, which was towards the end of the 90s, um, I didn't really understand anything about testing. And I'd certainly never heard of the term exploratory testing. Um, the first job I got, which was the same company I stayed in for over 20 years, but um, it was a very traditional test environment at that time. Um, and by traditional, I mean it was an independent testing team. We weren't part of the development teams, so we were separately managed. Um, there was lots of documentation requirements, upfront test plans and test cases and traceability matrices and all that stuff. Uh, and in fact, looking back on it now, there was much more focus on creating those pieces of documentation than there were on actually performing testing. And, and we did move to Agile, or we thought we were moving to Agile fairly early in the piece. So that helped change things a bit in, in the sense that the independent test team was broken up and we ended up being embedded in the dev teams. So that was pretty cool. But, but really, we were still doing the same things but just being part of dev teams. Um, so things were pretty slow to move. Um, and then I d actually didn't hear about exploratory testing at all until I did rapid software testing. Um, and after I did that, 
um, I was pretty vocal about the fact that we were wasting a lot of our time and eventually was fortunate enough to be given some some room to actually experiment with some of those changes to the point where we forced out all of the, the more traditional stuff in the end. Yeah, I think the shift towards Agile has made these conversations easier. It means that testers are, are considered more part of the process and their, their opinions are sought earlier than perhaps they have done, been done uh, traditionally. When I started to understand agility a bit more and after I'd heard about exploratory testing, I thought these two things are just made for each other. I thought, surely everyone is just going to be doing this stuff because it makes sense. Um, but clearly that hasn't been the case. And again, the Agile Manifesto is all about achieving shared understanding, and that does include shared understanding of the testing process. And I think this is why, although definitions are difficult, and there are sometimes people who are either very militant about definitions, or um, someone asks them what something is, and they just parrot back the one sentence response that they've seen in a book, when what you actually want is to have a discussion. I think having the definition is important, because it gives you a starting point to have the conversation. It's like, well, if we say exploratory testing is X, um, how does this match what we are doing as a business right now? Does this sound like something we want to move towards? What are the risks mm-hmm. associated with moving towards it? And like everything in software development, it, it's all part of understanding what you're doing and having a conversation about what's best for the business. Yep, completely agree with that. Um, but uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of danger there in uh, this sort of shallow agreement about what things mean. So um, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later too. But you know, people argue that we shouldn't get so focused on semantics and things, but really semantics is just about actually sort of getting this understanding of what we're actually talking about. And that, that seems to be pretty important to me. Yeah, it's the foundation to build upon. There's, there's no point in, in you both setting off thinking that you're doing what you both believe is exploratory testing if you're starting from, from a different perspective. So, yep. yeah, we're certainly going to go on and talk more about uh, the challenges during exploratory testing as well as how we can go to improve it. But before we do that, it's our second dip into the pool of status quo. Um, what's the second record that you found from the back catalogue that you'd like to talk about? Okay, so the second song is called A Year, which comes from a very early album called Pile Driver from 1972. Um, if you look at the cover of the Pile Driver album, you'll see um, the, the sort of front members on stage of status quo, heads down, long hair, you can't see their faces. It's a very heavy early album. But then you get this song, A Year, which is just such a different side of status quo and a, a much softer sort of piece of their back catalogue. So um, hopefully this is something a little bit different for everyone. You were all I lived for I guess my life is through I've been living so long I can't go on That was Status Quo with A Year, a sound that I didn't particularly associate with them. There's very sort of ethereal Led Zeppelin style sound. Uh, there really is a variety in the back catalogue. So thank you very much uh, for introducing me to that one, Lee. No worries. So we've been talking about exploratory testing and the challenges associated with doing it uh, or doing it well. Um, if you're someone who's doing a lot of exploratory testing or, or that you think you are, uh, it's quite hard to quantify how quote unquote good you are at doing it. It's not like something that has a metric associated with it, like, for example, code coverage. You can't say what your percentage of quality of exploratory testing is. 
how how do you go about um, reviewing the testing that you're doing yourself and whether it's um, the, the standard that you want it to be? Uh, this is a tricky one, I think. Uh, um, I've certainly worked with some very diverse teams uh, geographically where sort of making assessments of uh, the standard of their exploratory testing has been pretty challenging. I think in, in a broader sense, it's, you know, we're in a very fortunate time and in a very fortunate community, I think, in that there is so much in the way of excellent resources that are just available for free. This is certainly not something that was around when, you know, my early days of trying to work out whether I was doing exploratory testing or not, or doing it well. Um, So there's so much available for free that people can learn from. And the community is, at least in my experience, very, very willing to help people. So, um, you know, it's just like any other skill, I guess, is that practice is going to help you. But get getting that practice and then finding a way to engage with to engage with skilled practitioners that can um, give you some feedback on on the way you're practicing it um, should be very helpful. And so I think there's ways to do that through you know, social media or communities like Ministry of Testing, which are which are very, seem to be very safe and open spaces for people to try to get this feedback. Um, but and in, in particular, I think you can you can choose particular aspects of exploratory testing that you might be able to get feedback on more easily than others. So, you know, you could ask people to look at the way you take session notes, for example. And mm-hmm. um, I don't think people need to be intimately familiar with the thing that you were testing at the time. Um, to be able to give you useful feedback about your notes, um, and similarly with debriefing, I think you can you can choose to debrief with you know some other people than the ones you directly work with um, to sort of practice and get better at how you debrief as part of your exploratory testing effort. So I think really it's you know I think practice not practice makes perfect, but practice makes you better um, if you get the feedback that helps you improve. So. I would just encourage people to reach out to the to the excellent excellent communities that we that we have around testing for um, and actively seek their feedback. Yeah, I think there's a reason why why the, the words uh, practitioner and practice have have the same root, and uh, that's because yeah, you you learn by doing and by demonstrating. Uh, and I think, like you say, there, there are a lot of resources out there, particularly on the Ministry of Testing website. Like um, I know on, on the the club forum, there are a lot of links to like test websites that you can use if you want to to try and test something that isn't your own company's website for example i think um one good way one the good thing to do is to have a a very very focused charter like really tightly um tightly focused like for example um here is a form here is a date of birth field on that form what are all the ways in which we could choose to test that field and that could range from input values into well what if 50 people are on the site at once well what to what if someone comes on with a screen reader and you quickly begin to understand the scale of which um the amount of exploratory testing effort can occur and it helps you to realize actually the number of different charters and then if different style of charters you might want to, to run um i think also pairing is, is a really good 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 tool either with a fellow tester so that you can compare how your own testing styles or pairing with a developer so, so they can see um what it is that you do when you're doing exploratory testing um, i was pairing with a developer yesterday um, where we were working on some unit tests uh, and they got to a point where I realized the sheer number of test cases we were going to need to consider or, or work out how many we needed to pare down. 
And I switched away from the coding IDE into a notepad document. And, and they were saying, well, what are you doing? We're writing code. And I was like, yeah, but first of all, we need to understand what code it is we want to write. So let, let, let's iterate over what are all these cases? How many of these cases are actually the same as each other? And do we not need to worry about? Let's get it cracked. Let's understand what we're trying to do before we go and do it. And I think uh, that combination of things, um, as much as anything else, I think that really helps to quantify um, the skills and specialisms that a tester can bring to a project. Yep, for sure. Um, I think we, you know, th there's a lot of resources out there about sort of definitions and explanations of what exploratory testing is and stuff, but we are still lacking that sort of set of examples of people actually performing exploratory testing. Yeah. Um, that sort of demonstration of it is is pretty hard to come across. Um, so I think it, it is it is on us as practitioners to remedy that situation, I think. Yeah, it's, it's quite hard. To, it's not something that, that suits itself very readily to uh, to like a, a focused uh, demo. I, I know some people have, have done, for example, conference talks, so they've done live exploratory testing, and I am jealous as heck of, of those people. Uh, I believe Aaron Hodder did it uh, once. Uh, we referenced it in a previous episode. Um, but um, for my part, I've, I've put out, I've, I started doing a YouTube series uh, about six months ago, um, a video is called Let's Explore, which is literally me sitting in front of my laptop, hitting record, and you get to see me as I try and achieve a task, be it uh, writing some automation or exploring an API um, and uh, or write, writing a script, for example, a bit of Python to do something. And um, they are fun. I, I think just people putting these activities out there um, can, can be a really good thing to do. Yeah, so um, the, the talk, I think the conference talk that you're referring to is, is by a guy called Adam Howard, who's also from New Zealand. It's not... It's not Aaron Hodder, but um, I've, I have conflated them in my head. I, I've met them both, yeah. and they have the same initials, so that's how that's happened. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so he's done that um, talk a couple of times. He did that at um, one of the conferences I ran for the AST here in Melbourne too. It's pretty amazing, very brave talk um, to actually stand in front of a, a conference room and and just do some testing on something you've never seen before. I think it was really valuable to to have someone that is skilled in the practice of exploratory testing to do that and talk through what they're doing and why they're doing it. Uh, and we don't have too much of that. Um, so I, I did notice that um, Sam Connolly in Australia here is, is about to do a series of um, recorded um, paired exploratory testing sessions with people. So that there's gonna be a little bit more content there. Um, and we've got people, you know, we've got people talking about it. Like I, I think the conversation series that Simon Tomes is doing is pretty cool. Um, at least people are talking about what they do and how they think about some of this stuff. But um, in terms of actual, like watching someone do this and talk about what they're doing and why they're doing it, um, the more of that that we could have from people that know what they're doing, mm. um, I think the better. Yeah, I think that's that's the, the one big way in which perhaps exploratory testing differs from some of the other topics we've covered on the podcast in the past. Whereas traditionally, we've said here are a list of resources for newcomers to go and, and look at and, and learn for themselves. I think the onus here is really on the people who are living and breathing uh, ET and, and, and have a passion for how it's done. I think we need to be the ones who are, who are putting the information out there and making it available and advertising it. And uh, um as we're in a, a position where more and more people are being forced to do everything online, uh, which, you know, fingers crossed we're on the way out of this, um, 
I think there are opportunities there. Um, I, obviously, I've got, I will promote the Ministry of Testing again. We are on their feed, but they're an organization who, if you had a particular idea of something that you'd like to do, be it a, a talk or um, some kind of exploratory testing workshop, um, just approach them and you will be amazed at the number of different style of things that are available through MRT. Um, and I'd love to do more of it myself. Um, I'm in the middle of uh, an office conversion at home where I'm building a, a brand new office um, that is also... Um, going to be where i record all my podcasts uh, it's actually the room is named the podcast shack already it's got a sign <laughs> um, and i'm hoping that the podcast shack will bring you some uh, interesting things uh, later in 2021 cool and with that we're at the halfway point of the podcast song number three from you today lee okay the next song i've chosen is a somewhat newer song uh, it's from 2007 it's an album track it's called electric arena it comes from the slightly amusingly named album in search of the fourth chord i just thought again this is something a little bit different than that kind of heads down three chord boogie sound that clove become mainly famous for i just love the production on this song i think it, it comes across really well it it highlights is that lovely sort of nasal vocal tone that francis has in his his later life and the guitar sound on this is just beautiful i reckon so pretty different song but uh, electric arena Telling anyone who keep hanging on that I don't mind at all. Electric arena, wired for sound in lobby alleyway. From 2007's album In Search of the Fourth Chord, that is Status Quo again with Electric Arena. Now, we've been talking about how uh, enjoyable and beneficial the act of exploratory testing can be, but it's not without its own challenges. Um, I would like to uh, talk through a few that I've seen myself, uh, perhaps bounce some ideas off you about problems I've seen and how you can solve them. Um, number one is um, we've touched upon test reports and note-taking. Um, there are many people who... And this isn't a straw man argument. I've seen it. There are many people who would like the act of testing to be fully documented so you can look at it and see what was done and do the exact same thing again. And those people are very fond of automation and automation does have its place. Uh, but they are saying, here are some tests that I can run and see the same thing over and over again. Why can't you do the same thing uh, with your exploratory testing? Or why do we need exploratory testing at all? Um, what would be your answer to such a person who, who wants to see all their testing uh, written down? Yep, so uh, I've spent what feels like a very long time trying to answer these questions in in, in various uh, teams across the world. But um, uh, uh, what's been a very useful device for me is the distinction between testing and checking. But that's been a very helpful sort of sticky concept. Like people hear that and kind of get it, I think. So if we can explain why testing is different from checking, um, then we have a chance of explaining why the sort of documentation you might want to provide about testing would be not quite as simplistic as it would be for checks. I will put a link in the show notes to the to the classic definition of testing versus checking uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it. Um, but certainly in the context that we're talking, um, automation is very much check focused. It, it's kind of the only style of, of thing you can automate. It's um, is the software doing a thing that we know that it can or shouldn't do versus the act of testing, which is more closely tied with exploring and discovering things that we don't already know about the product. Yeah, that's right. So I think the 
once you can make that distinction, it, it becomes clearer that the way you would report on those two different sort of sides um, is necessarily very different because, you know, checks are this binary thing, right? And we, we know how to report on those, um, but reporting this other type of activity is, is more difficult. So, um, Yeah, how do you verify if something is correct when you didn't even know the thing was happening in the first place, for example? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and, and most of the time I've found stakeholders that ask for this ridiculous stuff uh, ask for it because that's all they've ever known what to ask for. Right? Or they've been conditioned to ask for that by by years of, of testers providing that information. So to provide something completely different is a challenge, right? So what I've the, the approach I've generally tried to take, at least as I've become more mature in my uh, sort of approach around this stuff, is um, is not to turn off the tap altogether for the stuff that they already think is important. Um, so give them, give them those reports that they've always had, but but also start to provide some documentation artifacts from the exploratory testing effort, you know, some session sheets or um, three-part testing stories, whatever it is that you can sort of add on to what they're used to, um, to, to give them an idea of, of what sort of information we can provide if we have this facility to provide this extra stuff um, that, that might give them a fuller picture of what's actually going on. Uh, I found that to be reasonably successful. Um, again, depends on the on the stakeholder, but over time, I found that the sort of the richness of information they get from sort of testing stories rather than just pass fail test case reports um, seems to be, you know, it seems to be very welcome over time, and, and people just want the story, right? It's it's what you'd say to them if you if you bumped into them in the kitchen or something and said. If they asked you how was testing was going, you wouldn't reel off all these test case pass file numbers. You you talk to them about what's actually going on. Sometimes I wish I had a manager like that, but yeah, they they very much want to know. Um, have confidence that you've done the thing you said you were going to do, and yeah, am I going to sleep at night? Is is this going to ship or not? Basically, is what they tend to be after. I think the challenge uh, is always making sure that when you're documenting, that you're doing just enough that you're not doing more than you need to because that's creating work for yourself, particularly if it's something that, that nobody's ever going to read. Uh, but depending on, on your business domain, you sometimes have to be a bit creative with this. So I work in the insurance industry or, or I, I work on a website that delivers insurance products to customers, which means we have responsibilities to external auditors so that if something were to go wrong and someone was to you know, have an invalid insurance policy, for example, we have to be able to demonstrate what it was that we tested such that the issue was either out of our control or um, that, you know, there was a gap in the testing process, for example. And again, the way in which I try and record my results is, again, I try to be fairly creative with this. So as an example, uh, if I run a, a single test scenario, like a, a customer's profile of um, their answers to 100 questions on our website, rather than capturing in our JIRA ticket, I won't write down all of those 100 values. What I will write down is um, when the customer submits that, uh, it generates like an, an ID, a unique ID for their inquiry. Um, I just put that inquiry ID uh, within the ticket and say, I, I submitted this inquiry because we have a backend system that allows us to then uh, give it that inquiry ID and say, actually, what data was used to generate this? And I can see all the data without having to write it all down or without having to make the JIRA ticket 500 screens long. Um, so in, in that way, I could say, actually, I'm capturing quite a rich amount of information without having to go excessively out of my way. And I think that's kind of been my approach to all test documentation is let's let's make it available if it's needed, but let's not um, 
put more effort in than we need to. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. Uh, and I think the good news is that a lot of the kind of reports that stakeholders are maybe more familiar with and are used to getting to come kind of for free out of the tools that they use anyway. So when you want to try these new things, it's it's work that you can just tack on to the free stuff that you get out of the tools. Yeah, and a lot of these are going to be demonstrated uh, during the Ministry of Testing's Exploratory Testing Week. So if you watch some of the sessions that are going on, um, there are workshops, for example, that we can play back and see examples of what this might be if, you, if you're not familiar with them. Um, as well as documentation, one of the big challenges uh, anywhere within the business when it comes to testing is how long is it going to take? Now, when you're doing an exploratory test, particularly if it's in a, a brand new functional area or a completely new product, how do you go about even beginning to estimate how long that's going to take you? Yeah, like you say, I'm not convinced that this challenge is any different for ET than it is for other approaches to testing, really. But maybe the the old style approaches feel like they provide you with more of a chance to estimate more easily, but that's probably a facade. Um, so the way I've generally attacked this is, uh, at least in agile teams, is to try to rough out some initial charters for a story during the grooming. So if you, when you're grooming a store and you've got to the point where it's in pretty good shape and has some acceptance criteria, then at least you can rough out some initial charters that might give you a rough estimate for how long the test effort might might be based on experience of, you know, of similar sized things. Um, then you can factor that into your story points or whatever you use for your sprint planning. Um, I did notice very recently an article by Rob Sabrin in the 10th anniversary edition of Tea Time with Testers. And he talked about a thing called simple experience-based test estimation, which I hadn't heard him talk about before, but actually looks pretty good. So it is it is fairly simple and looks at the size of the thing, the complexity of it and the tasks and uses like a buildup of, of those measures different pieces of work over time, that's the experience part, um, to try to give you an idea of like, how many sessions you might need to cover that thing. So that, that seemed like a, a reasonable approach to it, but I don't have a, a tried and tested sort of test estimation method either. That, that's the thing with, with so much testing is, is there is no right answer. I, I think, again, to come back around to what we said before, I think it's great that there are people out there who... Um, be it uh, Sam's uh, videos that you talked about earlier, be it Rob's article, that there are people who are putting ideas out saying, hey, this is something that we could do or that you could try and see whether it works for you. And maybe it will, or maybe it won't. And maybe you'll learn from it. Um, and the more that we can um, put these ideas out there, um, the more that we can find something that fits your particular context. Because again, it's, it's all about um, testing for the right context. Yeah, that's right. So some of these things will appeal to to some people or they'll fit into certain projects. And yeah, the like you say, the more of these things that are out there to try, the better. Okay, well, we've got one more section to come. Uh, and in that section, we're going to try and tackle the small task of determining how automation uh, can or can't fit in with exploratory testing. <laughs> Before we do that, uh, one more musical breather. This is your fourth uh, status quo song choice today, Lee. It is indeed. So uh, I think fitting before we go on to that sort of heavy topic is a very heavy song. Um, it's a song called Big Fat Mama. Um, comes from the very early days of Quo from that heavy pile driver album that we talked about before. It's a huge live favourite with the hardcore Quo fans. Um, it's kind of 
sort of quail at their, their hard rocking best, I reckon. It's got all those great quail elements. It's got a really great lead vocal from Rick Parfitt. And um, yeah, the version I've chosen is from their uh, live album from 1977, sort of their heyday of being a, a hard rock band uh, recorded in Glasgow. So this is Big Fat Mama. another live track from status quo that's big fat mama now any discussion about definitions and controversies within the testing community wouldn't be complete unless we also brought automation into the mix uh, so we've talked a bit already about testing versus checking and about how automation is very much checking focused um, what's your answer when someone says can we automate any of this exploratory testing yeah i've had this question many times as well um, so in this case, I think definitions are important, and the the more recent sort of bolt and bark definition helps me in this case because it highlights not just the sort of exploration bit, but it talks about the experience and the experimenting and questioning and inference, all these things that you know computers are not very good at those things, whereas humans are actually like naturally inclined towards doing those things. So, you know, that, that's sort of one answer is that, you know, that these really critical elements of what we think good testing is uh, are not things that computers, um, well, not even that they're not very good at it. Generally, they're just not capable of it at this point. Um, and anyway, the, the, the power of exploratory testing comes from that, exploration aspect, right? That finding the unknown unknowns and finding new risks that we, we couldn't have planned for until we went looking for them. So, you know, what, why would you really want to believe that you could automate that, right? Um, mm. And I think it's important when we have these conversations too, just to say that you know, you're being silly because you think you can automate exploratory testing, but I think it's important to also sort of point out the good aspects of automation and how they do help us tremendously. Um, and we should be using automation judiciously to to use the machines for what they're really good at, right? They're really good at doing the repetitive stuff, scaling things that we couldn't do using humans, um, the accuracy of, of checking, you know, millions and millions and millions of things that we wouldn't get people to do, um, at the same time using the humans for what they're good at. And, then, and by combining those sort of sets of different skills that the machines and the humans possess, then we've got a chance of working out whether the thing that we built is the thing we wanted to build and also whether we did a, job, a good job of building it. Yeah, and there are ways that you can use the, the things that computers are good at to support the things that humans are good at. Um, a term that I first remember hearing from Richard Bradshaw was, I believe he started referring a lot to tool-assisted testing. I don't know whether he, he got that from Buck and Bolton's work or whether he came up with that himself. Um, I just credit a lot of them because they're all very good people. Um, 
but uh, that's formed the basis of, of the course that he he now calls uh, automation in testing. And that that's there is a difference between sitting down and writing a selenium, selenium test versus using computers to do the things they're good at uh, and focusing on what that latter part looks like because that's the less well-defined thing. Mm-hmm. And a really simple example of that, um, that that I use all the time is something like, for example, a, a diff tool. If you are um, running, hit, hitting an API endpoint and getting a response back and you want to compare whether that looks like the, the response you got last week and you, know, you, you have both responses stored in the text file, it is much quicker for you to throw that into something like uh, Beyond Compare or WinDiff or any other tool and getting the computer to tell you what the differences are versus I'm going to sit there and read through these files and spot what the differences are. Yeah, yeah but, but you decided that you needed to know that. Right? So that's you using your skills. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The, the computer is, is aiding in your decisions. Yeah. And again, I think automation to drive or, or some form of automation to drive test data creation can be very useful as well. I remember coming across a website a few years ago. I wrote a blog about it that's not available now. I'll try and get it back sometime. Um, it was a website that had like an on this day in history feature where you selected a day and a month uh, and it gave you, um, you know, things that happened on this day. But I'd noticed through browsing the site that there were the odd occasional day that I selected, like a friend's birthday, for example, where I got page not found, like particular combinations of days didn't work. And I wanted to report that problem to the team that ran the website. But in order to do that, what I did was I put together a really simple shell script that um, very slowly, so as not to brute force the website, it went through a combination of every single day a month and submitted to that page and it read what uh, HTTP status code came back. So I could go to them and say, not just um, these two pages aren't loading. I could go to them and say, I've been through every single 366 day combinations and these 18 are for some reason not working. And that's, again, I could have sat there and browsed all those URLs individually, but that's a waste of my time and without being so big headed, my talents. I would much rather the computer that did that for me and then I get the information and I can deliver the information and we get the answer quicker. So all of this is to say that although exploratory testing is very much a human judgment-based activity, um, you can still either build or harness existing tooling to support testing. For sure. Um, it, it's kind of interesting to me that, that there seems to have been this idea come about from somewhere that uh, exploratory testing has to be testing performed without tools. Or if you do use tools, then it can't be called exploratory testing anymore. So. Uh, that seems like nonsense, right? It's just, why wouldn't you use tools that help you get something done, no matter what the work is that you're doing? So if you happen to be performing exploratory testing and you need something to help you do that, then why wouldn't you use it? Um, so my general approach around tooling has been not to mandate tool sets around anything, really, um, given that most teams are quite different from other teams, even in the same organisation. So. Um, I'd rather let teams select what works best for them, and you know, and if they need to build stuff that's perhaps even throw away small tools, then that's fine too. Um, so I think that the only sort of consistent tool that I found most of the groups that I've worked with for exploratory testing have ended up using, either by sort of direction or finding it for themselves, has been some kind of mind mapping tool. That that was. Uh, the adoption of a, of a tool like that in most teams really seem to sort of switch things a bit into a into a different mode when people started mind mapping as a as a way to both plan testing and document what they were doing. Um, so yeah, I, I guess that's my, my the only common thing I've seen is a good mind mapping tool to 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 help with planning and reporting. 
Yeah, and also, also with running as well. I mean, one of the pairs of terms we've not mentioned in this episode uh, so far is, is the idea of focusing and defocusing. And if you have something like a mind map, it allows you to drill down and focus on one very specific thing that you want to test whilst not losing focus of the bigger picture and allowing you to acknowledge that actually when we've explored this particular area enough, we can now defocus and we'll look a bit further up the map and say, actually, we were in this area before. Um, shall we pivot off and do this? Uh, and I think, yeah, we, we said we from the start that exploratory testing does not mean unplanned testing mm. um i think that the more you introduce structure like a like a mind map or some other way of making sure you know where you are um that, that's a really useful way to make sure you're um, getting really good coverage yeah i think so and it's yeah i, I don't know what the situation is like in in the uk but but certainly for most of the teams in most geographies i've worked with when if you provide uh, a development manager or someone like that with a mind map representation of the testing that's happened it, it's like a revelation to them to see the see the information about what's been covered in that form rather than what they're used to getting. Oh, it's incredible, yeah. Yeah. I think that sort of visual presentation is just so easy to consume for for people that are not so close to the test effort that it makes it highly valuable for that as well. Yeah, the speed at which you can go from I don't know how to tell my testing story versus, oh my goodness, look at all these things that we did mm. and all these things that we haven't had time to do and is there value in spending the time there? And again, it, yep. it provokes the conversation. It reveals testing to be a, a more skilled area than particularly the phrase manual testing, um, for better or worse, mm-hmm. um, you know, or just playing with the software. Uh, no, this is what we're doing. We are practitioners and this is how we go about doing it. And this podcast, as I say, is landing at a really good time because by coincidence, we have the exploratory testing week ongoing at the moment. So um, there are plenty more resources out there for you to go and, and learn more uh, or to uh, to work out how to refine your own skills. But before we get towards um, wrapping up this episode, um, Lee, you have one more song choice to come up today. Yes, I do. And I'm going to close out with uh, Quo's only number one single in the UK. Travesty, though, it is. Um, and it's, uh, it's Down Down, which I'm sure... Most of your listeners will be familiar with. Um, it's a great Quo song. It's it's got the catchy melody and the great rhythm and the guitar solo in the middle. Um, this is a, again a live version. I think um, I've been picking live versions because they generally show quote the best. I think um, this one comes from a, a bit of a metalhead festival in Germany called the Wacken Festival. So it, it's great to see ninety thousand metalheads getting getting down into uh, a bit of Quo with Down Down. That's the live version of Down Down, rounding out Lee Hawkins' selection of five status quo songs today. Now, you can bring one book to the desert island with you, Lee. Out of interest, have either Quo, the band, or their individual members written uh, biographies or autobiographies? Uh, yes, they have. Um, so there's been there's been a number of official autobiographies that are all fairly different. And... <laughs> Um, in more recent times, Francis Rossi has written his his own one. Um, sadly, Rick didn't get to get to work on his before he passed. Um, but yes, uh, Francis has, has done a pretty good job with this one. 
I mentioned up front that you run a, a status quo fan site that aims to have the most comprehensive gig listing of the band. And also there's a, a really good timeline section of like month by month, year by year, what the band have been up to. Uh, are things like official biographies really useful for filling in like, oh, I didn't know that happened then. And you, you go back and <laughs> you're like taking information out of the book. Not so much, actually. <laughs> yeah. I think some of the recollections that exist in these books are um, are not entirely accurate. Let's just say that, especially from, you know, the, the history is going back to the late 60s, right? So it's it's all a very long time ago, so things get a bit muddled. Uh, and in terms of documenting their gig history, like the, the band themselves, their management companies of various types over the years, their records are just terrible. So, um, but the band themselves use my gig history to go and look up <laughs> things. So... So that's what I told you how bad it is from an official point of view. So but that's a fun project. I, I get I get a lot of enjoyment from sort of finding out new gigs and people send me a ticket from a gig they went to 40 years ago or something. It's pretty cool. And hey, it all comes around to having excellent note-taking in a way, like we were talking about today. Um, yes, and there wasn't much of that yeah. going on in the 70s. <laughs> well, I'm sure lots of things were being taken, but maybe it wasn't notes. <laughs> um, anyway, you get to choose one book to bring to the island with you. Uh, is it going to be Quo-focused or is it going to be someone else? No, so uh, in a diversion from, from that theme, I've actually chosen something else. Um, so one of my favourite authors is Douglas Adams and uh, friends for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. So in one book, you can actually get the complete trilogy of five parts. Um, and um, that's a great series. And I've, you know, I've read that whole series many, many times, but um, I always find something new in there. And uh, I just love his, his writing style. It's so rich and the humor is just, it, it's so, such British humor, I think. And, and just the imagery that he conjures up in his writing to me is, is is very special so i'd love to keep reading that yeah you can find humor in in a situation um i'm going to put a link in the show notes to a, a famous douglas adams story about a railway station in the uk and a biscuit um there's not time to get into the story today but it, it's a great it's story brilliant. yeah whether it's uh, true or not it's a great story yes exactly he's he an excellent writer and uh, my rule with with trilogies or five-part trilogies as douglas adams has done is has always been uh, if there's a single entry for it on goodreads like the, the collection then absolutely you can take that to the island so congratulations you have uh, beaten the system and brought the trilogy of five parts to the oh, island with you today cool excellent <laughs> Uh, before we wrap up, I did mention very briefly at the top among your list of many uh, achievements and accolades and things that you're up to um, that you've you've been working on a couple of books. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the first one of those is called An Exploration of Testers. That's on LeanPub. So the, the idea there was to, was to come up with a set of questions, uh, a, a fixed set of questions, and ask that same set of questions to, to different testers to sort of compare and contrast the answers they would give. So the, some of the questions around testing, some are around sort of, you know, just their approach to life and careers and things. So that, that book aims to sort of collate those responses from different testers. So the first edition is out, second edition will be coming at some point this year. There's more testers there. Um, and all proceeds from lean pub sales of that go to the AST grants program. Um, and the other one is another AST project that has literally just started. Um, that's called Navigating the World as a Context-Driven Tester. Um, the idea of that is to provide kind of like an FAQ of you know common testing questions and context-driven answers to those questions. So 
Um, if you're familiar with lessons learned in software testing, it will be a little bit similar to that, but, um, but really targeted on, on specific questions that people probably get asked all the time and they don't really know how to give a, an answer that would be consistent with uh, sort of context-driven principles. So mm -hmm. as an example, we've posed the first question, which is open. Um, uh, and that was, you know, how would you respond if people say, we test to make sure it works? Um, there's lots of ways you could respond to that, but what would be a sort of context-driven testing principle answer mm -hmm. to things like that? So so those are my two projects. That, that, will, that book will actually be freely available from the AST's GitHub site, so there's no cost to that one. Fantastic. I'll put links to both of the, the Lean Pubs in the, the show notes. Uh, and like you say, the questions for the second book are coming out at the moment. Uh, they're being posted on the uh, AST uh, Twitter account, which is AST underscore news. I'll put that uh, link in the show notes as well. Sounds like it's going to be a long set of show notes today. <laughs> um, I almost feel bad asking whether you've got anything else coming up because it sounds like you've got your hands pretty full. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not working full time at the moment, so I've got a little bit of time on my hands. Um, I don't have any sort of commitments that are sort of set in stone that I could talk about, but I'll probably have a conference talk, an in-person conference talk later this year in Melbourne, all being well, um, and probably a few made-up talks as well. And I'm about to launch a podcast with two of my Melbourne testing friends. Um, so hopefully um, we'll have the first episode of that coming soon, where we talk about all things testing. So just uh, three testing mates that get together to talk about testing. Fantastic. Uh, if it's out by the time this episode drops, I will uh, put a, a link up. Otherwise, uh, I guess people will find out if they watch your Twitter account, which is dot, dot, dot. Uh, the Rocker Tester on Twitter, um, which is also my blog on WordPress, therockertester.wordpress.com. Fantastic. It's been a real pleasure to have you um, taking time out of your late evening, my lunchtime today, once we figured out the timings. Um, thank you very much uh, for coming on the podcast, Lee. Yeah, no worries. No, it's good. It's a good conversation. I think we need more of this sort of stuff. So happy to help. Thank you very much. And we're, we're back again at the end of next month, at the end of May, with uh, special guest Simon Tomes, uh, who you mentioned earlier. Actually, you, you recorded an exploratory testing video with recently. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. What was, was that like versus this? <laughs> and you could be honest. Yeah, that was a little bit different. Um, it was it was video for one thing, not just audio. So that, that adds a different dimension to it, I guess. And um, yeah, I didn't get to choose five status quo songs in that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we, it was pretty free form discussion about various things around exploratory testing. But yeah, I think Simon's doing some great stuff. So I was, again, I was happy to help him out. I'll take different as a very diplomatic answer. And uh, uh, thank you. I look forward to speaking to him as well. And I'll, I'll see what his thoughts were. Um, in the meantime, just a bit of podcast business. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about the podcast, we're on Twitter at Testers Island. And you'll also find links in the notes to our Spotify playlist that has um, all the songs from previous guests, uh, which now has more songs by Status Quo than any other band. No other band has gone over four and you've brought us five today. So uh, that's uh, setting the record for us. And there's a link to the Goodreads group where you can find a list of all the book selections uh, of previous and current and future guests. Uh, and with that, I'll, I wish you a very good night, Lee. Thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. And I'll speak to all you again next month. Bye, everyone. Testers on Discs is brought to you by Ministry of Testing, written and produced by Neil Studd. The music by Green Day. 
Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island.